Well, good morning. Um, it's great to be with you guys. Everybody awake? It snowed last night, but it's warm today, even in this building. Amen? So if you are new with us, if you walked in a little bit late, you probably missed the announcement. Too bad. Sorry. Um, no, I'm kidding. So uh, if you did come in late, you maybe missed that we said that we have three Sundays, now actually two and like a quarter left in this building, and we are out of here. We're moving on. So here's where we're headed, just so if you want to come back to the church, you can find us. Um, we entered on Monday morning, I asked you guys last Sunday to be praying Monday. Monday morning, we entered into basically a contingent offer uh, to rent to own for a couple months until our financing goes through our denomination and then purchase the building that used to hold Audrey's restaurant down Clisser Railroad Tracks. Everybody knows where that is? That's where we're headed. That's where church is going to be. That's where worship is going to be. And then right next to it is the banquet hall. We will be renting the banquet hall for our kids town space, for our youth space. That's where we will be. And good news, the owner has said when he's ready to retire and get out of there, the banquet hall, that's our first right to buy. He wants us to have that. So here's what this means. A couple different things as this sets in, because I've been like just so excited all week. Um, Number one, I get to tell our landlord this afternoon we're out of this place, which is just like guilty pleasure. Number two, um, more importantly and Jesus-focused, we're going to have a central permanent location in town, and that is going to open doors. Uh, this You'll hear more about this as we go on this morning, but that's going to open doors we've never had open to us. So just so you know, January 27th, our last Sunday in this building, February 3rd uh, is going to be worship by service. Here's what we're calling that. The church has left the building. So that's all hands on deck. Any of you that are able, willing, ready to come and help, we're going to get everything out of this building that's left. We're going to get in that new building. Um, we're going to just be there, pray and commission that building. And then February 10th, we will have a big celebration service in that building. We'll do one service. It's going to be tight and packed, and it's going to be super fun. Um, and we're going to do a baptism that day as well. We're going to get our big metal trough out. So if anybody wants to be a part of being baptized that day, uh, let us know. Fill out a connection card. It's going to be a special time and a special season, and we're going to need your help. So sound good? Everybody's ready? All right, we're going to jump in today. But before we do, I also wanted to recognize a couple folks. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had our partnership class. And partnership here is our version of membership. And that's where we kind of just share a meal together, talk about who the church is, where we're headed. And then when somebody says yes to partnership, it's kind of like saying, I just want to be all in with this community, with new community. And so when, we, when they do that, we commission them. So I'm going to ask Tiffany Board to stand up and Ashley Higginbotham to stand up and stay standing. And Scott Goddard is not here. He probably had a drive from Elkins and that didn't work today. So this is Tiffany and Ashley. And uh, if you guys would give them a hand. And then we're going to, again, when, when you're a member of something, you get the perks. When you're a partner of this place, you get the ownership. Okay, so welcome to the party. And we're going to pray for, for these ladies and commission them into God's service as a part of new community. So if you're comfortable, if you're close, maybe put a hand on a shoulder. If you're comfortable, extend a hand and let's pray for them. God, thank you for Tiffany. Thank you uh, for Ashley. And thank you for Scott who couldn't be here today. And I pray for them. Thank you that they've said yes to going all in. And God, I pray that you would just begin to clarify in them and with them um, more of who they are. And God, that, that they could bring life to this church that we need. And that you would just totally, God, commission them into your service as your children. Thank you for their hearts. Thank you for their wisdom. Thank you for their courage. And today we, we just dedicate uh, their ministry to you. And God, we're grateful to be a part of that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's give them a hand one more time. All right. 
So I'm going to try to slow down. First service, I was rushing because we had a congregational meeting in between, and I didn't have any space to play with, but I'm going to try to slow. I'm not promising anything. If you have a Bible, go to 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2. And as you're turning there, um, we're in a series called Love is the Movement. And I wanted to tell you just a couple quick stories from some movements of the past. Back in 1854, there was a book published by Harriet Beecher Stowe called Uncle Tom's Cabin. And when Harriet published this book, she was an uh, an abolitionist, the daughter of a minister. And in her book, she told this emotional story of the cruelty of slavery in the U.S. And in its first year, I want you to understand how explosive this book was. In its first year, it actually outsold the sales of the Bible. Like printing presses had to stay open 24 hours a day just to keep up with the public's demand for this. And so the story goes that several years later, after the Civil War had started in 1861, that Harriet traveled to D.C. with an invitation to meet President Abraham Lincoln. And that when she showed up, Mr. Lincoln, who was incredibly tall, not like me, he was incredibly tall, looked down at Harriet, and he just said simply, so you're the little woman that wrote the book that started this war. Several years later, in 1955, on December 1st, a young black woman sat down in the coloreds-only section of a bus. And when the white section filled up and someone demanded that she move from her seat, 43-year-old Rosa Parks simply said no. And this launched a boycott of the Montgomery bus system and the catalytic, one of the catalytic moments of the civil rights movement. And then on June 5th, 1989, some of you maybe remember this when you were kids, an unidentified, nobody knows even to this day, many people don't know who he was, an unidentified protester stepped in front of a column of tanks being run by the Chinese communist military. Just one day earlier, the military had used force and killed several hundred student protesters that were standing against the communist regime. And to this day, no one knows who this guy was but they know that he stood in front of the tanks. And many stories say that he was actually taken into captivity just a couple days later and was executed by the government. Now, I tell these stories because here's the, here's the thing. Every single one of these individuals understood a simple fact about being a part of a movement. And it's this principle. This is what they understood. Movements will always cost us something. To be a part of something revolutionary, to be a part of something countercultural, to be a, a part of something that changes the world, it will cost us something. For Harriet, for Rosa, for this unknown young man, there were undoubtedly costs to standing up. There were consequences to making their beliefs public. There was a moment or maybe a series of moments for each of them when the things that were in their heads and their hearts would come to light and force them to say, I have to count the cost. Last week, we started this series called Love is the Movement, and we're talking simply about this movement that Jesus started, which was truly a movement of love in its purest form. It was a movement of good news. It was a movement of grace and of hope and of compassion. And we're saying to you, I'm kind of casting vision, not just for our church, but but for the fact that if you're a follower of Jesus, you're still a part of this movement. And so last week, I kind of presented this fact to you, made all the parents feel guilty to say love always jumps in the pool, right? Even if the water's cold, you you jump in the pool and you go after people that are lost. And we talked about the fact that the love of God for us can't stop with us. That the love of God for the world has to come through us. And so we're part of this movement that actually seeks to pour back out the love of God to people 
that are lost. Now, today I want to press further in this, and I want to ask you a question that I believe every single movement, that every single movement leader asks. It's a question that every one of you, if you're going to fully follow Jesus, will have to ask. And, and before I ask this question, let me kind of tell you the why behind it. Now, some of you are here and you say, well, I'm a Christian, but I didn't know that was part of a movement. I kind of come on Sundays, and, and that's what my faith is really about, is growing and knowing Jesus. And I want to say to you, the Christian church, people who have followed Christ, have always been a part of a movement that started over 2,000 years ago. Let me explain this to you. This is, this is how I can say this. When Jesus died, there were about maybe 1,000 followers of Christ in the entire world. Think about that. Like less than a thousand folks about the time that Jesus died. Now, by about 300 AD, the movement of Christianity was actually moving throughout the known world. One uh, writer, theologian, Rodney Stark, he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. It's 300 pages of bliss. You should read it. And I know many of you will. Um, he says in 35 AD that there were about 1,000 followers of Christ. And then by 150 AD, by the year 150, there were 40,000. That's good growth. Then he said that uh, about 50 years later, by 200, the year 200, there were 218,000. That's really good growth. And then he said that 50 years after that, in the year 250, there were 1.17 million believers in Jesus in the world. That's what the kids today call viral. Amen? That is an explosion. That's exponential growth. That's epidemic. Today, I don't know if you know this, there's 2.19 billion followers of Jesus in the world. So if you would say, I'm a follower of Christ, you are a part of a movement. I would argue you're part of the most intense movement the world has ever known. They killed the leader of the movement, and he didn't stay dead. That's a good movement. And 2,000 years later, it's gone from less than 1,000 to billions throughout the world, and you're a part of that. Now, I also want to tell you, ultimately, this movement, and more importantly, its participants, had asked the question that, again, I believe every movement asks. So if we're going to be part of this, this gospel movement, this good news movement, this hope in Jesus movement, this love is the movement, then we're going to talk about the question that every movement asks. And here's the question. You can write this down, take notes, take a picture, whatever you need to do to remember this. But here's the question that every movement asks. What is required of me? If I'm going to be part of this, if I'm going to go all in with this, if I'm going to step up and say, I'm going after this, Jesus, I've said yes to you. And it's not about just Sunday mornings, but it's about what you want to do in the world. If I'm going to go all in, then the question is, what is required of me? If you're part of the civil rights movement, the question, what does equality for all require of me? What is that going to cost me, it may cost my privilege, it must cost my bias. What's it going to require of me? For Dr. King, I have to think he stood up every single time that he preached and said, it may cost me my life today. That's what's required of me. For the Civil War, what does freedom from slavery require of me? For the man in Tiananmen Square, what does it require of me to step in front of this tank knowing that they killed my friends yesterday? If we say love is the movement, then the question is this, what does love require of me? What does it demand on my life? Now, I, I, would, I would just kind of, and I'm still in the introduction, I know, I'll, I'll get there, I promise. I told you I was going to slow down a little bit. Why does this matter? 
Why do we want to ask this question? Why does this matter so much? Because here's, here's what I would say. Here's why. Number one, following Jesus ought to mean, it has to mean, it should mean more than just Sundays for you. Now, we say that all the time. We always say we want to be a church that follows Christ, that finds Jesus beyond Sundays. We talk about that, but I want to put that just personally to you. If your faith in Christ is only about the 60 to 75 minutes that you spend here on Sunday mornings, I just want to release you from that guilt and say there's better ways to spend your time. I love being with you. I love preaching. I love teaching. I love worshiping with you. But go to CrossFit. You'll live longer. There's better ways to spend your time if it's just about Sunday. Sundays are about 75 minutes of the 10,000 minutes in your week. It has to mean more than just Sundays. I would also say this. If, if you're going to connect with new community, if you would say, this is my faith tribe, this is my faith community, this is the place where I belong, this is the place where I want to belong, then, then you need to know that as your pastor, as one of the leaders here, we are inviting you into a movement, not into a monument. That got an amen first service and not today. Okay, that got it. That, it. We're inviting you to be part of a movement and revolutionary theological truth. I'm going to drop on you right now. Movements actually move. They don't sit. They don't camp. Now, many of us want to come to church and we want to camp. I'm here. I survived my week. Give me Jesus. Help me feel better. I need it. Just pour it out. That's not a movement. That's a monument. There was a great seminary professor and he was invited to visit a church that was dying it was beautiful church just beautiful architecture stained glass windows all this gorgeous stuff and he walks in and he begins looking around the church and they're going dr Hendricks, tell us tell us what we need to do tell us and he said i have your answer he said i have your answer set up a line set up ropes here and charge admission you will make a fortune he said because you have become one of the most beautiful museums of christianity but you have ceased to be a church see movements move and if you're going to be part of a new community we are inviting you to a movement not a monument and here's the third reason why i think we have to ask this question we're just simply in a pivotal moment for us as a church, we are in a pivotal moment. We are, and I did not realize, Carrie and I were amazed. We were looking back at pictures and stuff. We've been in this building as a church. Some of you have been here the whole time. Some of you have been here part of the time, then you left because you thought, well, maybe this something will get better. And then you came back, and some of you are just starting. We've been here five and a half years. And we're in a place where, I want you to recognize this, we're in a moment where we have never had permanent space for programs we have never had, listen, we have never had handicapped accessibility in our church for five and a half years. We have never had, <laughs> I'm going to start like, here we go, like call and response. We have never had those there. <laughs> We've never gone through February with a warm building. We've never had enough space for kids downstairs. Do you realize that? We've never had dedicated space for teenagers. We've never had a place where we could say, college students, you want to come hang out? Come hang out. Let's do something. We've never had any of those things. So this is a pivotal moment. And if you're going to say, new community is my tribe, we're inviting you into that moment. And it will demand, it will require that you answer this question. What does love require of me? The introduction is over. All right, 1 John 2. I got three verses today, four verses today. That's all we got. Here we go. Verse 8, here's what he says. And I'm going to show you what love requires of you. John says, yet I'm writing you a new command. Now, I love this. 
Because John, in his letter to the church, remember last week I said John wrote the book of John about Jesus, then he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, letters to churches. In his letter to the church, he says, I'm writing you a new command. And the thing that he says echoes back to what he wrote about Jesus and something that Jesus said. Look at John 13, 34. We'll have it on the screen. Here's what Jesus spoke. Jesus said this, a new command, go ahead to the next slide, a new command I give you. He says, love one another, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. So in 1 John, he says, I'm writing you this new command. It's the same new command that Jesus spoke. And Jesus spoke, he said, I love one another. As I have loved you, Jesus said, the new command started in me. You've seen me live it out. You've seen me love you. You've seen me love people. Now I want you to live this as the new command. And this was part of something that John had seen in Jesus that I would call the start of the love movement. It was a love invasion. John 1, verse 5, here's what it said. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, it was the light of Christ being poured out as love for all the people of the world. For God so loved the world, right? God so loved the world. You ever thought about that verse? Many of you see it. You, you paint, like you've seen it painted on people's chests at the football game. Like, I don't understand that. But John, like, for God so loved the world. That's an annoying verse if you really think about it. Wait, you mean God loved the whole world? Like, God loved the people that I don't love? And God loved me when I'm not lovable? God loved the whole world? And John says, yes, the light shines in the darkness through the love of Christ. So go back to 1 John, verse 8. Here's what he says. Yet I'm writing you this new command. And the new command, he says, its truth is seen in him, in Jesus, and in you. Because the darkness is passing, and the true light is already shining. John says, the love invasion that started with Christ as the light invading the darkness is now being poured out, and it's continuing. And he says, here's the new command. Don't forget the new command. That's what John says. Don't forget you're supposed to love one another because the invasion in the darkness has already started. Now we go, this is nice fluffy words. This sounds so good. No, this was truly about a countercultural, revolutionary, subversive movement. John says this is about a political revolution because in their culture, there were corrupt leaders who wanted to manipulate people to enhance their own power and their own wealth. Aren't you glad our world isn't like that anymore? That's what I thought. See, it was about the love invasion that would overturn that. It was about an economic revolution. These individuals were taxed up to 90% of their income. It was a social revolution. This was a divided culture, a racist culture, a class-based culture. And John says, the darkness is passing because the love of Christ has started to be poured out. Now I'm giving you this command, keep the movement going. That's what he says. And it's built on this new command. Look at verse 9. He expands what this means. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Now, you know who I hate? And I know I'm not supposed to say that. Like, I'm your pastor, and I'm not supposed to hate anybody, and you're not supposed to hate anybody. So I'll say it this way. You know who I struggle to try not to hate? <laughs> you know who, some of you are still offended. You know who I really, really, really strongly dislike? Now Watch. It's the people who mistreat my kids. Super hard for me not to hate those people. And I've seen it around town a little bit, maybe in some of you. That you struggle with that too. Any mama bears in the room? I know, we're all prim and proper, but, but let's talk about the baseball field. Okay, just, I mean, just as an example. You have a coach, and the coach doesn't give your kid the right amount of playing time. 
And your kid has now been mistreated super hard not to really, really, really strongly dislike that person. Amen? You, you, you see the ref make a bad call, and you're looking for whatever projectile weapon you can find at that very moment, and you're just lucky that it's not there, right? <laughs> you have a teacher. Your child has a teacher, and they misgrade something, or they grade something different. They, they mistreat your child. It's so hard. I can't handle it, and neither can you. When people mistreat our kids, we often come unglued. And you know what I think? I think maybe God feels the exact same way. I think when God sees us mistreat his children, mistreat his sons and daughters, hate his sons and daughters, that he has a tough time with that. Because here's how I know this. If you mistreat my kids, my daughters, these are my precious daughters, young teenage boys, these are my precious daughters. If you mistreat my kids... You can buy me gifts. You can give me money, maybe a little bit every week. You can sing me songs. You can praise my holy name. But it doesn't change it because I've seen you mistreat my kids. Now, let me, let me pause for a minute because we're, we're talking about something that's so critical to understand. And, and, and this comes a little bit in the Jewish religion, but really in the religions of all the ancient cultures. See, they had a model of understanding God that was what was called a temple model. And so for the Jews and for the other ancient cultures, if you wanted to get right with God, you went to the temple. Now, here's how the temple model worked and always works. The temple model was built on several things. It was built on sacred places. So you went to the holy place. It was built on sacred texts. So you heard the proper scriptures or the proper text. It was built often and, and probably all the time on sacred men. Always men, right? The, those who would lead, those who would control. And then it was built on sacred followers. You had to try to be holy. Oftentimes, they maybe like superstitious followers or scared followers. But see, this was the temple way of doing things. And then when Jesus comes and Jesus introduces the Jesus movement, it now becomes something new, something different, something non-temple, and it's really built on a new covenant. Jesus comes and he says, a new covenant I give to you in my blood. It's different. You don't have to go kill the animals anymore. It's something different. A new command I give you. You've heard it said, try to be holy. Now I tell you, love one another. A new ethic, a new way of living life, a new Movement. So let me say this. Some of you are more concerned even today with the temple model of your faith than the Jesus movement. Many of you are living your faith in God or your faith in Christ based on a temple model. So let me give you examples. If you feel guiltier about missing church or mass than mistreating someone at work, you're missing the new command. You've still got a temple faith. If you sit around wondering how close can you get to sin without sinning, I know, right? You guys, do you guys struggle with that? I think we all struggle with that. How close can I get to, maybe you don't, but I remember when I led youth ministry, the question in the dating series every time, how far is too far? You taught us the Bible, you taught us about purity, but like how far physically is too far? And we all do that. How close can I get to sin without sinning? That's a temple model. If you believe that there's some ritual that makes you right with God and you don't have to actually make restitution with someone you've hurt, you're missing the Jesus movement. See, the temple model is always I-centered. What must I do? 
What must I believe to make things right and keep things right between God and me? I had a bad week. I screwed up some. I need to go to church. It's all about me. It's why we do what we do. I want to I be centered on God because it'll make me happy. I want to give money so God will bless me. I need to get back in church. I hear that all the time. I need to get back in church. Well, we haven't moved. Come on over. We need to get back in church. I, I, I. That's the temple model. And I would say it's not built on Jesus. See, temple thinking always gravitates to rules and rituals, to legalism and loopholes. But the Jesus movement, I don't miss this. See, once you accept Christ as Savior, you, you actually become fine with God. And God actually becomes fine with you. And you're part of something that's different, new. So, so here we go. We're asking this question, what does love require of me? It's the question that every movement asks. What does love require of me? What's going to be demanded of me? And if you join the Jesus movement, this new commandment, this new model, this non-temple, non-I-centered movement, the answer to this question is easy. What does love require of me? Here's what love requires of me. See, the movement of Jesus requires love for the you beside you. I just lost about most of you. The Jesus movement requires that we would begin to move our eyes off of the temple model that says it's all about I and that we would learn to love the you beside you. Look at your neighbor and say, you're you. Hey, 11 o'clock, let's wake up and participate. Look at your neighbor and say, you're you. So that's a you that you're called to love, period, end of story. The Jesus movement requires that we would love the you beside you. If you're part of this movement, if you're part of something that says love is the movement, listen, John says Jesus made it clear. He said it's not about the 600 plus rules back in the Old Testament that were all about the temple and I, I, I. John says, no, the Jesus movement, it's about love and it's about love for the you standing beside you. And then he goes on and he says, anyone who loves their brother and sister, look at verse 10, anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They don't know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them, blinded them. So if the call is love the you beside you, and John says that's how you're going to live in the light, then the question automatically from everybody I've ever met, well, who's my brother or sister? Because you don't know my brother or sister. I don't really like my brother or sister. That's who you're called to love. That's a you beside you. Yeah. Well, yeah, but what about, what about that coworker? Like that coworker doesn't feel like a neighbor. We don't live beside each other. We're not brother. We're, we're not blood relatives. Yep, that's them. Love them. Okay, but what about like my, my neighbors, and, and it's West Virginia, so my neighbors live two miles away, but you don't understand, their dogs get on my property all the time, and there's like, am I, yep, that's neighbor, that's a brother or sister. Okay, but what about the people that are a little bit scary, and, 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 and I know this is relevant right now, like they're from other, other places, other countries, and we don't have, we call the, yeah, anyone who hates a brother or sister is walking in the darkness, they're blinded. In the darkness. See, what John says is that if you have hate in your heart, if you have this, this, uh, this anger, this, this force that just kills us, that keeps us from what God wants, we are walking blind. You're missing out on the movement of God, the mission of Jesus, and the hope of life. See, I would say it this way. When love is the movement, life is centered on that you beside you. Now, I, I want to give you an example of this, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close the day. Can, would anybody be brave enough to volunteer? 
I always look typically at the front row. Ethan, can I can I volunteer you? Okay, right, you were you looked so willing, and you made fun of me last week from home. So, um, I <laughs> just stand right here. I'm gonna have you take your glasses off if you don't mind, and I'll and, and then I'm gonna have you blindfold yourself. Um, Ashley and Brittany, maybe Sarah, you guys can come help him a little bit. We're not gonna do anything mean or abusive. I promise. Okay, feel feel good about that, Ethan. Okay, you guys just stand beside him. What I've created beside you, Ethan, with, with Ashley and Brittany and Sarah is a party. We've, we've invited you all to a party, and, and I want you to just be as fully a part of this party as you can be. So, um, I, I'm just going to offer you guys parts of the party, and I want you to enjoy the party. So, you need to, you need to just enjoy it as much as you can. Here, back up a little bit, because i got to get down the way. Okay, so you're good. Doesn't want that. Okay. Um, we're going to give other parts of the party to. Doesn't want a part of. Okay. And then uh, we've got these to go around. Just offer those around. Keep keep going. Ethan, you enjoying the party? So great. Okay, good. Um, and then I've got, I've got some, some, some interactive stuff to hear. You guys can enjoy. Just enjoy the party. Bring your friends along with you. And then probably the best part of the party is the, the party favors. You guys just, yeah. whatever you like. Whatever you'd like. My sermon's going to go long if you take a while. Okay. Okay. Ethan, is, uh, is the party good? Okay. Now, here's the thing. What the scripture is teaching us is that God has said, there is a party I'm inviting you to. Now, I know many of you grew up in a church that said, there's guilt that God's inviting you to. There's shame that God's inviting you to. We just want you to know how sinful you are. And when you realize that if you don't turn, you're going to burn, then you'll come to Jesus and life will be great. Many of us, that's what we were handed. What John is saying is that you are invited to walk in the light. And the only thing that's required is that we learn to love one another. That we learn to love the people that break our hearts. We learn to love the people that are hard to love. And he says, as long as you're missing that, you're walking in darkness. You're walking blind. You're missing the party. Ethan, you can remove your blindfold if you would. And I want you to see the party that's taking place around you. It's missing out. Would you give these guys a hand? Give them a hand. You can keep the candy. You're fine. You guys can have a seat. Here's the thing. You can just sit it there if you want. Thank you. I don't want you, listen, I don't want you to say that you're following Christ and you're missing the movement of love because you've missed the party because of the hate in your heart. And today I'm inviting you to be a part of that party. What does love require of us? So as I close, I have two questions. Number one, what does this mean for new community? What is this this all about? Just specifically, I said to you, we're in a pivotal moment. We got new building space coming. We got programs that we haven't done before. What does love require of us? I'm asking you, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you as a part of our church, if you call this church home, to learn to love the you beside you. Because friends, listen, you represent what God is doing in this place. And if you're not loving the people beside you, then you're misrepresenting what God is doing in this place. So I'm asking you a couple things. One, invest and invite. How many of you have friends who don't know Christ? Come on, put your hands up high. How many of you don't have friends who don't know Christ? There's your glasses. If you don't have friends who don't know Christ, you're not getting out there where God wants you to be. 
You need to be engaged with people who don't know Christ. And I'm asking you, invest in their lives. Spend time with them. Ask them to coffee. Ask them to hang out. Ask them to the gym. Whatever it looks like, spend time investing in their lives. And then as you invest in their lives, you invite them naturally into the places where they were encounter Christ. We will always do the best that we can on Sunday mornings to make this a place where no one will feel awkward, strange, that they're not a Christian, that they could walk in here and because you've invested and invited them, they find it safe. What does love require of you? Invest and invite. Here's the second thing. Saved people, you can write this down if you want. Saved people serve people. See, I think a lot of times we have saved people who are sitting people. And we got saved and Jesus loved us. Now, I'm here at church, just feed me. Feed me, I love all you can eat buffets. I know I'm already spiritually fat, but keep feeding me. See, saved people serve people. And when saved people serve people, what that means is the last thing I want to say to you about this, that you begin to take your next step. Maybe your next step is, I come when it's convenient. Maybe your next step is, I'm going all in. I'm going to be there as much as I possibly can. Maybe your next step is, I need to serve. I need to step up. Because here's what I know. Listen, when a church enters a new building, about every study you read says this, they grow automatically by 20%. That's just typically what happens. Now, here's what that also means. If the systems aren't in place, if kids town doesn't have enough volunteers that parents feel like their kids are welcome, if the nursery can't handle all the kids that are coming, if the greeters are not showing up, then we will lose those people just as quickly as they come. We have to be ready. We need you to take your next step in serving, many of you. Maybe your next step is saying, I'm just going to say yes to Jesus. I want the church to know that I'm going public with Christ, so I'm going to be baptized on the 10th. What is your next step? What does love require of you if this church is your home? And then the last question, what does this mean? Just listen, outside the church, what does this mean for you? See, some of you are here and you would say, I've been following Jesus. Man, can go ahead and come. I've been following Jesus for a long time. But I think I've been following Jesus in a way that hasn't cost me anything. I think I've been following Jesus in a way that it really hasn't required me to love the people that it's hard to love. I bet if I ask you, like, just take 10 seconds right now, and I'll just ask you to do this. Who's somebody that it's hard for you to love? Who's somebody that's hard for you to love? I bet in three seconds you have a face or a name. Coworker, family member, spouse, neighbor, somebody. It's hard for you to love. Different political party. Mm, now we're preaching. It's hard for you to love. What does it require of you? Who is that person? What would that look like? And then there's some of you, and this, this is the last thing that would say, you know what, I've been floating around this Christian faith, or I've been checking out the church, or maybe it's my first day here, and I don't know that I would call myself a follower of Christ. I don't know that I've really said yes to Jesus, because it always did feel like that guilt. It always felt like that sin thing. And, but the party, that, that's pretty appealing. See, here's what I know, and this is the good news. This is the love is the movement. God answered this same question. When God was asked the question, what does love require of you? God said, it cost me my son. I gave my son up. I took my son and I said, I'm going to let you go to the cross so these people can walk in light. So they can be a part of this movement of love and grace and hope and truth built on Jesus. And Jesus answered the same question. What does love require of me? Jesus said, it cost me my life. I had to walk willingly. Peter, put away your sword I got to go to that cross. So for us to be asked this question, what does love require of you? Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. And the first thing you have to say is, you know what? God answered that question so I can answer that question too.
Let's pray together.